What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, friends. Good to see you. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable. Your chance, before you head into the weekend, to look back and catch up quickly on the big stories of the week from our nation's capital. And what a week it's been. Today, Washington is still in shell shock over the leak of a draft opinion by Justice Samuel Alito, revealing that five justices on the Supreme Court, as pro-choice Americans have long feared, are ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. That decision and that leak have shaken Washington to its core, with everybody trying to assess their impact on women's rights, on the midterm elections, and on the court itself. Yesterday, I had a chance to discuss the consequences of that leak with Elizabeth Wider, head of the Constitutional Accountability Center, and we'll play that interview for you after uh, today's round the, at the end of today's roundtable. Uh, meanwhile, in other news, the first primary of the season was held in Ohio with looks like Donald Trump coming out the big winner. Joe Biden told the White House Correspondents' Dinner that he plans to run for a second term. And freshman Congressman Madison Cawthorn continues to amaze us, now showing up in yet another video, this time nude and in bed with another man. <laughs> well, joining us today to try to make some sense of it all, Sung Min Kim, a White House correspondent for The Washington Post. Uh, good morning, Sung Min. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you back. Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for 19th News. Hi, Amanda. Hello. And David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Hello, David. Hey, Bill. How you doing? All right. So let's start with the Supreme Court. It's only a draft uh, opinion at this point, but it really did shake Washington up on many levels. I'd like each of you to give us your take overall on what you think the impact of the leak and, more importantly, the decision will be on Washington, uh, the court, the Congress, national politics. Uh, Sung Min, let's start with you. Right. Well, this certainly was just an earth shattering, um, you know, disclosure that we saw this week from, you know, and I really have to commend my former colleagues at Politico for reporting the news and which we should note that obviously Chief Justice Roberts later validated saying that it was an authentic draft, but he did caution that it was not a final decision. And we and we expect to see the final decision, you know, usually by the end of June. I don't know uh-huh. if this uh, speeds up the process in, in any fashion. But um, I mean, first of all, this um, obviously just if this decision is 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 what eventually ends up standing, if, if it is final, clearly the implications nationwide for abortion access will be monumental. We have so many states that are really prepared to, um, you know, snap back abortion restrictions, very restrictive abortion restrictions in place. And that means just you're going to essentially have almost two Americas where women can have access um, to um, do an abortion procedure and so many other states where women cannot. Um, and at the same time, there are so many um, political implications as well. I mean, co- clearly this um, this decision is coming in the middle of a very hotly contested midterm year. We knew that a lot of the factors that voters would take into consideration would be or, or, or would have an influence is, you know, President Biden's approval ratings, which are not great at this point. Obviously, the state of the economy, where a lot of the fundamental um, kind of fundamental points of the economy are strong. You know, we see the unemployment report this morning, the unemployment rate still staying at 3.6%. You know, there are voters worried about gas prices, about inflation, about, you know, just the, the essentially the rising cost of so many things, so many everyday things that they 
need. And Democrats think that this really brings the issue of abortion, um, you know, back into the political sphere. And they feel that they have the political um, upper hand when it comes to voters with their position on abortion access. So very, you know, monumental in so many ways. We we could go on, but clearly a lot of impact in so many different areas here. Uh, And Amanda, you, uh, and I'm assuming too, I'm pretty sure, uh, Sung Min Kim, your entire life, uh, Roe v. Wade has been the law of the land, right? I mean, so to women nationwide, Amanda, um, what differences is, will this make? Let's assume that the decision stands, which I think most of us would agree those five justices are not going to change their mind. I mean, this changes everything, even if you're in a state. So as Sungman said, you know, there's about half of U.S. states that are poised to ban abortion in some capacity um, if this decision falls in row and overturns that case. Um, It will immediately become a patchwork of, you know, half the states you can have access. Clearly, Um, the other states, it's restricted in some capacity or totally Um, especially in regional areas like the South, uh, you could have to drive multiple states over or travel multiple states over to find a state where you're able to access abortion care. Um, I would expect an an effect of clinics closing because if one of their services was abortion and that's no longer allowed, they might not be there to provide other services. Uh, You know, it's it's going to be a a real scramble for a lot of people to obtain abortion care and health care in this country. And we already have a health care system that isn't the best. Um, And then we already have people in Congress and the Senate Republicans talking about potentially pursuing a federal restriction, you know, capping Mm -hmm. it at six weeks, which would be about, you know, what one of the heart so-called heartbeat laws is. So, you know, I, I cannot overstate kind of how women and other people felt this impact this week. Um, I, you know, my phone was blowing up for 48 hours with, you know, people I've met, like my entire, you know, years as a reporter asking me what I thought this meant, because unfortunately, I think voters, uh, you know, they kind of knew this was coming, but it wasn't real until they saw it happen. And, you know, now we're going to be really seeing this turn into an issue headed into the midterms. Right. So, David, both Amanda and uh, Sung Min mentioned uh, the political implications of this. Um, I want to get your comments, but first, uh, it didn't take long uh, for this to hit the political airwaves. Here is an ad that Tim Ryan, who will be the Senate candidate in Ohio against J.D. Vance, who won the Republican primary just three days ago. Uh, Here's uh, Tim Ryan's first ad against J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance wants to eliminate abortion. No exceptions for rape or incest. Vance says rape is inconvenient. Now he's calling the Supreme Court opinion an amazing victory. Impact on the politics. David, could this turn the midterms upside down? Uh, Very conceivably, yes. And I want to point out that it took J.D. Vance two days to respond to that ad. He finally put out a tweet yesterday afternoon. The Republicans are very loath to talk about this. I think in the short term, uh, I mean, obviously the, the Democrats are going to use this to raise money and to put, make this the top issue because some of their other issues, frankly, aren't very good. So it will be an interesting test because I think most people feel like over the course of the since Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, I think the issue has worked better for Republicans because the anti-abortion people have been more motivated and are, are more intense about the issue. And I think that has helped some mm-hmm. Republican candidates in some races now that uh, it looks like Roe is actually going away and it's a real thing, the Democrats feel like that they're, they'll have more of their voters, more pro-choice voters who are going to be upset about what the new world, that they're going to come out and vote for some of their candidates. Um, I, it's hard to assess whether that's going to happen, but I, my focus is on races like the one you just noted, the one in Ohio. I think in, in purple states with close Senate races, places like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia, uh Nevada is also a big one where abortion's already been an issue. I, I think it'll, it, it will be interesting to see that if, if this issue puts the Democrats over the top and helps them keep the Senate. Do, do Republicans in the general election want to run on abortion? No, no, not at all. They want to run on the economy and Biden. And they've been they're being advised as we speak to, to keep the focus on those two, two items and to basically try to avoid or downplay the abortion issue. Um, 
their strategy, obviously this is going to become an issue and it's something they're going to be asked about. So the Republicans are advising their candidates in that case to put the onus on the Democrats and say the Democrats are extreme about abortion. They don't believe in any restrictions on abortion whatsoever. And that's, a, that's an issue that polls, you know, fairly well for them. So it's, it, they're going to be much more in a reactive mode when it comes to abortion. By the way, one other thing, and I, I agree with everything that's been said about this, but uh, this, this stunning decision, but this is only a draft opinion and it almost surely will not be the final opinion on the court. I think the court will strike down Roe. It will uphold this Mississippi law, but I think it'll do it in a different way than the one Alito presented in his draft opinion. And basically when that comes out in late June, we're, we're going to be going through this same exercise. There's going to be a, mm, a mm-hmm. constant 20, you know, week long Sturm and Drang about the political impact of this and, and the, uh, the practical impact of it. So, and I'm, my fear is that voters are going to be very confused because basically we're going to be making the same arguments here in about a month and a half. Right. Uh, so, Men, I want to come back to uh, whether the White House was blindsided by this. What, what, were, what are your sources telling you at the White House? And, uh, and by way of introduction to that question, um, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, happened to be scheduled to speak to Emily's List. Early money is like yeast is what Emily stands for, a women's organization that only supported women candidates who are pro-choice. Addressing that group, here's Vice President Kamala Harris. If the court overturns Roe v. Wade, it will be a direct assault on freedom, on the fundamental right of self-determination to which all Americans are entitled. Those Republican leaders who are trying to weaponize the use of the law against women. Will we say, how dare they? So, Sung Min, the White House, is, uh, are they on this? Do they see this as an opportunity? Well, they have been preparing for months. What sources are telling the Washington Post is that the White House officials, administration officials have been preparing for some time since the obviously the oral arguments were made uh, you know, late last year. And, and, and you kind of you started to see where the tea leaves may or may not turn when it comes to the fate of abortion access. Um, so there has been some planning in the works for some time, but they were certainly caught off guard, um, not only by by the leak, but the substance of what was happening. Um, and there was, um, you know, there were marathon meetings, marathon conference calls among White House officials, outside advisors and whatnot. And there's really, um, and, and, and there was a, there was a reality that set in that they, that there's really little that the White House or the federal government can really can do in response if uh, Roe versus Wade is overturned. Um, some discussions that are being, uh, some, some options that are being discussed is, for example, whether federal funding could be made available to women who travel to other states for an abortion, um, looking at perhaps Medicaid dollars to do that. Um, but the feasibility of that is very unclear at this point. Um, so they are really in sort of looking at all options on the table type of mode, but that those options on the table may be very few. Um, obviously, the Senate will take up legislation next week that effectively codifies Roe into law, but we don't expect that to advance in any way because, first of all, you need 60 votes. The filibuster is still in place. And um, and you know Democrats control only uh, only fifty votes in the Senate, but at the same time, on the substance, it, it, this Senate is not um, when it comes to Democrats. Uh, not all Democrats support um, yeah, support right. abortion rights. You have Joe Manchin who opposes abortion rights, and Senator Bob Casey who doesn't get talked about as often. He has a kind of a complicated record on abortion, but he has generally opposed. Um, mm-hmm. he, he has been supportive of abortion restrictions in the past. So, right. so there is, um, so there's that complicating dynamic. So for, so for right now, the white house and, Cong- and especially in the Senate, they're pointing to this vote next week. It'll be next Wednesday in the Senate as kind of the next step of, of what, um, of what lawmakers are going to do here. But then I asked Chuck Schumer yesterday, okay, so that fails next Wednesday, then what? Um, and he didn't answer the question. <laughs> well, because he knows the votes, right? He can right. count. <laughs> and, right. Um, uh, Amanda, uh, none of us are uh, Supreme Court reporters, but um, this leak and the decision, uh, expected decision uh, will, will also have some impact on the court, meaning um, the 
the viewpoint of the court as being a legitimate independent organization or a bunch of political hacks. No? Uh, Yeah. Uh, I think that this kind of cements in a lot of people's minds that the court is a political institution. Um, It's probably going to need to be covered as a political institution going forward. Uh, Senator Murkowski, and I'm going to read something she told reporters this week, because she is the one who voted for some of these justices. Um, Specifically, she was talking about uh, Gorsuch. Um, And she said, it has rocked my confidence in the court um, because they told senators during their confirmation process that they believed Roe to be settled law. And now they've, you know, seemingly signed on to an opinion that states otherwise. So you have moderate Republican senators saying they no longer have confidence in the court. The American public's confidence in the court has already been waning. You know, several of the justices have been on kind of like a perception improvement tour the past couple of years, trying to make <laughs> right. the case that that's not so. But, you know, what what else are you to think? No matter which side leaked it, whether it was, you know, one of the conservative justices offices or one of the more liberal justices offices, um, you know, there's a strategy behind that. And that's a political strategy. It's not a legal strategy. And, you know, I I just think this will cement in many people's minds that this is now a political institution and already at a time when kind of there's been an erosion of confidence in our institutions. Uh, Yeah. So, David, does that lead to um, efforts to change the court? Remember, we talked in 2020, I think it was Pete Buttigieg who talked about expanding the court. Um, People have talked about term limits for members of the court. Uh, Do you see that this will increase conversations about possible changes? I don't. In fact, that's one of the things that I think has been missing this week. We haven't heard much about that. Maybe we will once the actual decision comes down. Um, I just, and there's a commission, I think, studying the changes to the court, but I I just don't think there's a consensus there. In some ways, I think the Supreme Court's kind of like social media. I mean, both conservatives and liberals are are attacking it but for different reasons uh, because the, right. you know, the conservatives are still mad about the health care decision that John Roberts engineered. So that, that's, that, that colors a lot of their criticisms of the court. And obviously the liberals are, are quite concerned about the, the right wing turn the court has made. So I think the, they are, they are under attack. They are being criticized, but they're being criticized by both sides for different reasons. And I think that alone will, will promote the status quo. We'll just have to move on. I mean, don't forget the, the court was pretty excoriated after Bruce versus Gore in 2000 and they're still there, you know, yep. 22 years later. Still, <clears throat> still nine members, right. right. And uh, still appointed this, uh, the same way for lifetime, lifetime terms. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, we could talk on and on about the Supreme court. There are other items in the news that we should touch on. And we will, after we take a quick break here on today's roundtable uh, with our great panel, Sung Min Kim from the Washington post, Amanda Becker, 19th news and David Jackson from USA today. Quick break. We'll be right back. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A, under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. Over half a million members of the Laborers Union really make up the backbone of the labor uh, movement here in the United States. They are active in the construction field, in the energy field, in the healthcare field, building uh, infrastructure even today, and of course, geared up to build even more now that the infrastructure bill has passed uh, in the energy field, building solar panels and uh, wind turbines and uh, even old-fashioned pipelines, and active, of course, in the healthcare field at the national and the local level. Uh, We salute the members of the Laborers Union, thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod, and direct you to their website to find out more about the great work they're doing at Liuna, L-I-U-N-A dot org. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. 
Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Back with today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod, joining us, uh, David Jackson, uh, political national political correspondent from USA Today, Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for 19th News, and Sung Min Kim, White House correspondent for the Washington Post. David Jackson, let's go to Ohio and the first primary of uh, the midterms 2022. Um Donald Trump endorses uh, in the Senate primary, Republican Senate primary, J.D. Vance, who pops up to first place and and wins the prize. Big win for Donald Trump, above all, huh? Uh, a win for Donald Trump, no no doubt about it. I, I do question how big it is. Um, uh-huh. But you're right. Uh, Trump definitely won this primary for J.D. Vance. He had never led in any poll until Trump endorsed him, I believe. It was on April 15th. Uh, J.D. was hanging around 10% and often in fourth place in a five-person race. And all of a sudden, he just zoomed to the top and stayed there. He won with 32% of the vote, but I, I, I would argue that Thirty-two percent. You know, it's a good number, obviously, but it's not a great number. If Trump, if Trump's endorsement was the all-powerful lever that it's supposed to be, you'd think he'd get closer to forty percent. Uh, the people I talked to in Ohio and elsewhere figured that the Trump endorsement is worth about ten to fifteen percentage points, which is a good chunk of change, especially in a five-person race. But uh, there's a lot of questions as to how valuable it, it might be at a one-on-one race. And we get a test of that coming up in a couple of weeks in Pennsylvania when Dr. Oz, who has the Trump endorsement, uh, goes up against David McCormick. And that, that's the next test that we'll be looking at to see the, the true nature of, uh, uh, that's of the, Trump's endorsement. Is that the 17th or the 24th? I forget. I think it's the 17th. Uh, George is the 24th, which will also be an interesting test. Now, to be sure, all, most of the candidates were pro-Trumpers. So obviously he, he's the dominant figure in the Republican Party. But there was one guy, uh, Matt, Matt Doland. Matt yeah, Dolan, right, right. who explicitly, he was a businessman. His family mm-hmm. owns the Cleveland Guardians baseball team. He he explicitly did not seek Trump's endorsement. And he said that while he it liked Trump's policies, he thought the party should get behind all of his false claims about the election. Dolan also saw a rise in his fortunes after Trump's endorsement. He wound up finishing a, a very close third with more than 20% of the vote. So there's an anti-Trump sentiment. Ohio also betrayed an anti-Trump sentiment in the, in the Trump party, in the Republican Party that that may be growing as well. Yeah, Sung Min, I wanted to ask you about that because if you look at, as David pointed out, J.D. Vance won, but he got 32% of the vote, which means 68% of Republicans, right, voted for the candidate Donald Trump, a candidate Donald Trump had not endorsed. Mike DeWine, the incumbent Republican governor, very handily beat out three active pro-Trumpers, and Mike DeWine is no pro-Trumper. So, you could look at Ohio and maybe the rest of the country, or can you, I guess is my question, and see that the 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 Trump um, power or over the party is maybe waning a little bit, no? Well, I also think you have to look at trajectory, and um, you really did see if you looked at the internal numbers or the, or the, or the figures among the Republican primary candidates in the final days of the race, um, particularly after former President Trump weighed in for J.D. Vance, you do you did see um, support for J.D. Vance rise. So I think sort of that trajectory is also worth counting in terms of assessing mm-hmm. um, assessing the former president's power in the Republican Party. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, other, you know, other Republican candidates or Republican officials who had endorsed other candidates, for example, you know, former Senator Rob Portman, who's, who's, this is his seat that he is vacating. He had 
endorsed another candidate in the race, Jane Tinkin, but he, he obviously put his full support behind J.D. Vance. So a lot of a lot of this is kind of what happens in a primary. But at the same time, I think you make an interesting point about sort of the um, sort of kind of the the anti-Trump wing of the party or the people who try to distinguish themselves away from away from the former president. And, and David mentioned, you know, you know, former Senator, State Senator Matt Dolan, who tried to do that. You know, he supported the policies of the former president, but set aside the big lie about the election. Um, and I think Democrats, at least in Ohio, see that as a potential opportunity for them. Um, Tim Ryan, who, as we mentioned, is the Democratic candidate in the race, he started mapping out sort of his pathway to victory in a state that has been trending significantly red in recent election cycles. He wants to appeal to those Matt Dolan voters, the, you know, the, I, 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 the the percentage yeah. the, the percentage of voters in the Republican primary who backed um, him and Tim Ryan and his people feel that they can appeal to those voters because there's something about Trump something about Trump and the big lie and where the party is going that these Dolan voters clearly did not like so um, so how that plays out in the general I think is going to be a really interesting dynamic for me to watch whether Tim Ryan can get a lot of those Republican crossover voters who are upset mm-hmm. with the former president. Right. Uh, so, Amanda, I want to take you out of Florida and down to, I mean, out of Ohio and to Florida, where you just came, you just came back from Florida, where you uh, met, interviewed uh, Senate candidate Congresswoman Val Demings uh, running against Marco Rubio. Give us a, a quick assessment of how that race looks. Yeah. So obviously, Florida has become uh, increasingly difficult for Democrats in statewide races, but there are aberrations. It's also kind of the ground zero of all the, the culture wars that are happening with DeSantis being the governor um, and their Senator Rick Scott kind of putting out his 11 point plan um, that wasn't necessarily encouraged by other leaders of the party. Um so I obviously think this will be a, a tough race for Representative Demings to win. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, you know, she's likely going to be facing Marco Rubio in November. They're both the front runners in their primaries. So I had planned to follow her on Tuesday, um, even before we got the leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I was even more interested to, to see what people were talking about um, when that happened. I spoke to maybe a dozen people at her event before she spoke. Every single one brought up abortion rights and abortion access. Um, One said that they hadn't decided to go um, to that event because it was a little over an hour away from where they lived until that happened on Monday night. Um, She told me she felt like she couldn't breathe all day at work because or like she was on the verge of having a panic attack. And when she walked into that room and found other Floridians who were similarly concerned. It felt like the first time she could relax that day. So, I mean, you know, just to bring it back full circle to abortion in the midterms, um, I think that this is something that really is reverberating because it's real to people now. As as you um, played the VP's remarks from the other night, this is no longer a hypothetical. Um, and, you know, this is what everyone was talking about that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rubio is um, clearly... On, on uh, behind the decision, I would imagine. Has he spoken on it? Yeah, well, so he hasn't spoken on it. You know, as we were talking about earlier, a lot of the Republicans, especially in the Senate, um, mm-hmm. are preferring to talk about who leaked it um, versus what it would actually do. Um, but Rubio just this week introduced a bill that would prevent companies. So there's a lot of major companies who are saying, well, we'll pay for employees to go elsewhere if they're working for us in a state where they can no longer access abortion care. Um, Rubio introduced a bill that would eliminate tax deductions for those companies. So what we're seeing is um, lawmakers on the trail and in Congress on the in the Republican Party not exactly adhering to the party's plan on this. Um, the NRSC put out a memo this week that was first reported by Axios, where it gives it gives them talking points, and you know part of it is it says emphasize that we're a compassionate party. And in capital letters, it says Republicans do not want to prevent access to contraception. Republicans do not want to criminalize abortion Mm. care for women or their doctors. You know, we're not going to throw them in jail. Yet there are multiple states right now that want to do exactly that. And yes, those are state level lawmakers, but 
Congress is the only place that could pass a law to stop any of that. And that's not something that Republicans want to do in the Senate. So, you know, there there was a new bill introduced this week to criminalize abortion care by Louisiana uh, in a Louisiana committee. It passed. So um, also Marsha Blackburn during uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson's hearings recorded a video where she said that she thought a decision called Griswold um, establishing the right to contraception for married Americans was wrongly decided. So, you know, uh, there's the talking points that were put out and they don't necessarily square with reality. Right. Uh, so, David, um, switching to, uh, to the president of the United States and his political future, I was surprised at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, you and I were both there, when twice the president kidded about, um, and, but he was not just kidding, about running for re-election, um, running for a second term. And this week and uh, several times in his public comments, he's gotten more and more uh, energized, focused, and really taking on the MAGA party. Here's a quick clip of Biden a couple of days ago. This MAGA crowd is really the most extreme political organization that's existed in American history. Uh, so, uh, David, is this a new tack on Biden's part that he feels this is the, you know, this is the ticket to, to run on? Uh, the, I think the public nature of it is new. I'm, I, I agree with you. I noted that during his speech as well, his pledge to run again. But I wasn't surprised because I think he's tried to make that pretty clear in private for quite a, some time now. We did a story about a year ago on this, on you know, Biden's hopes, and they made it very. He made it very clear, and they made it very clear that he was going to run in 24, if only to show us that we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> I'm told he's quite annoyed because there are so many stories, Bill, and you, you and I know a lot of people who, who just yeah. have taken it as an article of faith that he's not going to run in 24. And I think right. Biden has heard some of that and taken offense at it. So I think he wanted to deliver the message to us that yes, I'm going to run in 24. And based on the comment you just played, obviously one of the reasons he's going to say he's going to run is to prevent the country from electing Donald Trump again. Right. Well, so if that's the case, uh, Sung Min, uh, are we looking at a rematch in 2024? We Donald Trump and Joe Biden? We certainly could be. I mean, I think that um, I mean, for both men, obviously, uh, obviously for the for the current president and for the former president, because of the power that he has um, in the Republican Party still, both men obviously effectively clear the field if they do decide to run again. So if there are potential challengers waiting in the wings, um, this is a little less of the case for you know the former president. But generally, I think that um, any sort of willing willing challengers in 2024 will sort of you know wait in the wings until they until both uh, President Biden and Donald Trump decide what. They're going to do, and and at the same time, both men are very eager to run against each other. Um, in terms of the current president, I believe he was asked this question. He he was asked about Donald Trump um, in his recent visit to Poland in March, mm-hmm. uh, asked by a foreign correspondent, just because of the because of the fear that European officials have about Donald Trump's potential return and what that would mean for, for example, the NATO alliance. And President Biden expects sort of expects confidence that he could run against Donald Trump again and beat him again. And obviously 2024 is ages away. We don't know what the political dynamics will be. We don't know, especially what the state of the pandemic will be, what the economy will be, all very important factors in a presidential election. Um, But for right now, it seems like they are sort of kind of shadow boxing each other and very, um, very eager to uh, very eager to uh, run run against each other again, if that arises in 24. Right. Uh, and it's interesting, too, that uh, President Biden doesn't usually mention Donald Trump's name, but he does talk about the MAGA crowd, right? I mean, so that, that's his... That's Very his much deli- so, yes. That's his deliberate uh, focus. Um, He's covering DeSantis that way. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so another big uh, item in the news this week uh, we have a new White House press secretary announced yesterday, Karine Jean-Pierre, who for the last two years has been the deputy White House secretary. Uh, Amanda, this is a, as Joe Biden himself might say, a BFD, isn't it? I mean, she's a history making pick. She would be the first black woman and also the first uh, out uh, gay person to 
uh, serve as White House press secretary. So, you know, he is making history again, as he has with many staffing picks um, by choosing her for this role. And a Supreme Court pick, too. Yes. Um, yeah. First black woman on the Supreme Court. So, you know, one one area where this administration really is living up to its promises is by appointing and hiring uh, the most diverse um, set of White House staffers and appointees that we've seen. Uh, I know uh, Corrine well. We did some good work on CNN together. You used to get to the train back and forth to, uh, to New York uh, for TV appearances. Uh, Sung Min, you've seen her uh, in action uh, at the White House. Um, is she up to the job? It's a really tough job, the White House press secretary, but she has certainly um, been in the been basically uh, Jen Psaki's backup for so many uh, on so many occasions, the last uh, for over the last fifteen months, and she has taken questions from reporters on Air Force One um, and gaggles there. She has repeatedly stepped in for Jen at briefings and taken an array of questions. Obviously, been uh, obviously fielded a, a ton of questions ranging from domestic policy, to the war in Ukraine, to legal issues. Um, and, and and so certainly um, she has a task ahead of her, but she is very prepared for the job. Obviously, you saw the flood of congratulatory notes, um, yeah. you know, from White House staffers and, you know, and the press office staffers adore her. She has a very good reputation. Right. Uh, and David Jackson, I don't know you've been to any of uh, the briefings where Corrine has uh, filled in for Jen Psaki, but you've certainly been... You've seen a lot of press secretaries come and go, <laughs> David. You and I have too. Uh, what do you think? Um, not surprising. I know uh, my understanding when the administration started was that Jen Psaki was only going to stay for a year or so. Yeah, she said that. was up for the job that time, and uh, mm-hmm. he wanted to bring in someone with a little more experience, so they made uh, her the deputy. And now Saki's actually following through and going off into television land and, and elevated Corinne. Obviously, it's an historic pick, but there's no surprise about it. I think this has been in the works for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, and I think she'll, uh, I think she'll do a great job. Uh, just delighted to see her uh, get the uh, get the number one slot there uh, at, at the White House. What a great uh, review of the week uh, with Sung Min Kim and Amanda Becker and David Jackson. Before we let you go, uh, there's always one story, whether as busy as we are, that makes us stop in our tracks. Uh, we call it our favorite story of the week. It can be. Uh, <laughs> happy or sad or political or non-political or just off the wall. Um, David, start us off. What, what caught your attention? I'm not sure it's a story, but it's, to, it's interesting to me. It was news that uh, HBO is going to be putting up a documentary later this month about George Carlin, oh, a famous whoa. comedian. I'm probably dating myself, Bill, as I'm dating uh, you, but <laughs> I, I find George Carlin to be a, certainly a seminal figure in the history of stand-up comedy, but also in politics itself. He started out in the 60s as your standard Las Vegas-style comic, suit and tie and all that thing, but he drifted into the counterculture, and he just developed some hilarious routines related to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll revolutions of the 60s and the 70s. He pioneered the cable television stand-up special. He also had a riff on the seven words you can't say on television, which wound up as a big FCC censorship case before the U.S. Supreme Court. (laughs) So uh, I find him, you know, I find him one of the greatest comedians in history. And I think it's going to be an interesting documentary. It's going to be a real solid, factual, historical documentary. And I think it will illustrate how uh, how what Carlin said back in the 70s, 80s and 90s still resonates today, particularly with respect to the culture wars. But it debuts May 20th on HBO. Oh, May 20 on HBO. Thank you. Uh, I want to just add a little footnote to that. A friend of mine sent me today, uh, sent me this week. Uh, talk about being uh, timely. Uh, George Carlin's routine talking about anti-abortion protesters. Correct. Uh, I could not repeat. Yes, no, <laughs> the words no. the words that he uses, but I would uh, urge you all to just Google it. George Carlin um, on abortion, and uh, it is really <laughs> he really rips into uh, uh, it's it's a lively performance. He also has a riff that. on the fragmentation of America from I think from seventy one that still resonates today. That's flowing around the internet too. Okay, Amanda Becker, your favorite story of the week. Oh, Bill, as usual, I've chosen one that's pretty sad. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> always leave it to me to bring it bring it down the tenor of everything. Um, it's actually from a couple weeks ago in the New Yorker, um, but I read it on a plane about 10 days ago and 
haven't been able to forget about it. And it was called The Mystifying Rise of Child Suicide. Um, And it was uh, following a really excellent also New York Times series on the same topic. Um, But just really look at this, um, looking at this kind of explosion in mental health issues in increasingly younger kids. It's it's truly an epidemic. Um, We're talking about kids age 10, 11, 12, um, who are considering suicide, who are depressed. Um, and this is Mental Health Awareness Month. So that story was written by Andrew Solomon, who's a who's a doctor in The New Yorker, and it was called The Mystifying Rise of Child Suicide. And I would also note that in July, um, I learned recently, July 16th, a new suicide prevention hotline is launching where people will only need to dial 988 um, to uh, reach someone to talk about what they are going through. So, and that launches in July. Oh, uh, yeah. That story shook me up, too. That was really, really a shocker. Uh, Sung Min Kim, you, you can bring us back up. To- <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, my, I, yeah, my story that I picked, um, uh, I am always one of my favorite um, stories of the, the Trump era was his um, brief flirtation with purchasing Greenland. And, um, <laughs> and that resurfaced again this week. I saw we, that. Yes, yes. Like it's it's your favorite story and mine, Bill, from the Trump from the Trump years. But um, but that uh, surfaced uh, that story surfaced again um, in a in the Pennsylvania Republican primary debate where uh, where the where the moderator asked um, asked the asked the participants whether whether they supported um, President Trump's bid to buy Greenland um, from Denmark, and the question was act and the question was actually relevant because one of the candidates in the race was Trump's ambassador to Denmark. So Carla oh, Sands. Uh-huh. So there is a, so there, there is a reason, you know, Greta Van Susteren wasn't just randomly asking primary candidates whether they supported that Trump idea. Um, to be clear, uh, Carla Sands said she was very supportive of that idea because Trump is a, Trump is a deals guy. He's a real estate guy. Um, but I just always appreciate when, uh, when we can just kind of, <laughs> Talk any occasion to talk about that era where he briefly wanted to buy Greenland is a is a good story to me. <laughs> yeah, we need a, a Greenland needs a casino, right? <laughs> well, um, uh, my my favorite story of the week. Uh, I just can't get enough of uh, Madison Cawthorn. I mean, he continues to amaze us. We have seen in the last couple of weeks where he has tried to bring a second for the second time, a gun into an airport. Uh, I think he's been uh, stopped and maybe three times for driving without a license, driving illegally in North Carolina. Uh, We know that there was this video of him wearing women's lingerie on a, on a, on a cruise ship. Uh, One of the, his Republican Senator in North Carolina uh, has accused him of insider trading uh, there's this lawsuit to try to prevent his running for reelection because he supposed he reportedly well we he, he did seem to support the insurrection. Uh, he accused Republican congressmen uh, and senators in Washington of conducting orgies to which he was invited. He called President Zelensky of Ukraine a thug, and now the latest we have this latest video of him where he appears nude in bed with another man. Madison Cawthorn finally responded to that last item, um, by blaming, of course, blaming the media. And I want you people to hear, here is Madison Cawthorn giving political reporters a lesson in good reporting. This article is pushing a ludicrous narrative that I'm some kind of drag queen on the side, aside from being a congressman. And really, this is just poor journalism. And I'm not surprised. It is Politico, after all. Not exactly the same journalistic standards as Fox or Newsmax. I hope you take that seriously from Madison Cawthorn, David and Sung Min and Amanda. You are, you are not, you are not following the same journalistic standards as Newsmax and Fox News, right? So in a way that's true. I mean, we do have different journalistic standards. That is absolutely a fact. I have a different journalism standard than Newsmax does. Yes. Guilty as charged, right? Uh, uh, me too. Right. Oh, what a great conversation. Thank you so much for your good comments. Thank you for your time. Sung Min Kim, 
from the Washington Post, Amanda Becker, 19th News, David Jackson from USA Today. Uh, Thanks. We'll see you all again soon here on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, great panel. But as I mentioned earlier, before we go, uh, yesterday I had a chance to discuss the consequences of that big Supreme Court leak with Elizabeth Wydra, the head of the Constitutional Accountability Center, talking with Elizabeth about particularly two important points regarding that leaked opinion. First, how a decision to overturn Roe v. Wade could damage the court by making it look too political, and second, how that decision could imperil not just abortion, but a lot of other individual rights. Elizabeth Widra, thank you again for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. Always good to talk to you. Great to be with you, Bill. So uh, big bombshell hitting Washington this week with this draft of the leak of the first draft of the opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito, where five judges reportedly are ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. Granted, this is just the first draft. Elizabeth, do you think there's any way that those five justices might change their mind between now and the formal decision? There is certainly always a chance. You know, nothing is over until the opinion is actually, uh, you know, published and not just the leaked draft. But um, and, and, and I do think it's important to note that this is just a leaked draft. And so abortion remains legal. Um, uh, Roe remains the law of the land. But that being said, those of us who watch the court closely and were listening to the arguments in December mm-hmm. thought this could be happening, thought that this could be the result. And so the fact that apparently five justices voted to overturn Roe after those arguments and that this was the first draft of their opinion, while it's a gut punch to read the words, um, it is unfortunately not terribly shocking. Now, you know, could there be some changes to the opinion? You know, the, the language was extraordinarily strident. Um, and could there be some ch- some changes made to that language from some of the other five justices? Of course. But um, unfortunately, I think that it looks like the court is poised to overturn Roe versus Wade and gut the right to abortion in the United States. If that holds, and if that is the published decision, what does that mean for women in the United States? It is a massive shift in the way that uh, millions of us understand our liberty and equality. The, The idea that you could no longer have the right to make this most essential decision for yourself, that you wouldn't be able to have the right, um, no matter where you live in this country, to make this fundamental decision about one's own body and charting one's own fate, um, really upends the concept of liberty and equality for um, pretty much everyone in this country. You know, even if you are not a person who can become Mm -hmm. pregnant, uh, you know people who can become pregnant. And this attack on the equality and liberty for some of us attacks the equality and liberty for all of us. So it has huge consequences in the actual lived experiences and the daily lives of everyone in this country. But it also would mark a seismic shift in the law as we've understood it for decades from the Supreme Court and has implications not just for the right to abortion, although that is bad enough, mm-hmm. but also for other fundamental rights that we hold dear and um, some of which, you know, we've kind of taken for granted the ability to access contraception, for example, which has you know been protected for a very long time. And um, the idea of interracial marriage, which, again, has been protected by the Supreme Court for decades, and many of us take for granted, as well as the right to marry for same-sex couples, and even the right to intimacy for same-sex couples. So, you know, this is a huge shift in the understanding of what equality and liberty mean in the United States with respect to abortion, and then possibly many other uh, deeply important fundamental rights. So it's been almost 50 years uh, that American women have, um, as you say, 
didn't take this right for granted, but they have had this right, and they have come to they've grown up with this right. Many women have not have are you know younger than Roe v. Wade. So, what does that history mean? Does it mean nothing? Whatever happened to the concept of stare decisis? Is it just out the window? You know, I, I have to say one of the things that I, I found, um, you know, uh, frankly offensive, <laughs> in addition to being just legally incorrect about the way that the leaked opinion talks about stare decisis, one of the important things about come to rely on it. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, the legal term is reliance interests. And, you know, there's a there's an enormous reliance interest of people across this country who assume that they will be able to make these decisions for themselves, um, that they will be the ones to decide when and with whom, whether to have a family. Um, and so there's an enormous reliance interest on the right to abortion. But Justice Alito in his draft opinion kind of swats that away by saying, you know, he can't really assess the nation's psyche. And, you know, this isn't like a property or contract case where you can say, well, she's invested $10,000 and therefore we can see her reliance interests. And so to really just um, give so little credence to the enormous reliance interests that um, women and other people across this country have placed in the right to choose an abortion to make these decisions for oneself um, is just is just legally wrong and um, I think offensive to a lot of us. Does this mean that um, some of the Supreme Court justices they did? Uh, I'm going back to their confirmation hearings, right? They they certainly gave the impression that they weren't locked in on anything. Did they lie in their confirmation hearings about how they would handle Roe v. Wade? I mean, you know, look, they they all say the same answer, which is that, you know, Roe is settled law. Um, but yep. Roe is settled law until it isn't settled law. And, right. you know, the question that I would have asked them had I been on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and which I would have pressed them for an answer on, is, well, what do you think the 14th Amendment protects when it comes to the right to abortion. And, you know, that is where this divide comes in. You know, you could you could easily uphold Roe just on stare decisis grounds um, by saying it's settled law. But even more important is that Roe is rooted in constitutional protections of bodily autonomy, of the equal protection of the laws that is reflected in the idea that um, people get to make decisions about whether or not to take a pregnancy to term for themselves um, and to, you know, the way that the, the inequality that would be visited on women um, in particular across this country, you know, defies that protection for equal, equal equality under the law, um, as well as other liberty concerns. So, you know, they kind of wiggled out of answering anything about it by saying it's settled law, but it's settled law until five justices of the Supreme Court decide it isn't. And that's what we're looking at today. Right. Uh, And so a question that some have raised, and I'm thinking particularly about Justice Sotomayor uh, at the hearing uh, when the Mississippi case was up, her famous quote about, will the court be able to survive the stench right, of being just seen, if they rule this way, as a political, shifting with the political winds, right, just being a political court. Um, What does this say about the legitimacy? What does this do to the legitimacy of the court? I'm not talking about the leak. I'm talking about the decision that they're about to make. Yeah, and thank you for that distinction, because, you know, while it is unprecedented for a leak of a, you know, fully drafted opinion to come out, um, you know, what is what is outrageous is the content of that opinion. And I think I think that it is it is deeply harmful to the legitimacy of the court because the decision is deeply and outrageously wrong on the law. And here what that is matched by is the intuition of Americans who may not be constitutional experts, but feel in their bones that a person cannot be fully free, cannot be an equal participant in society if they don't get to make decisions like this for themselves, that they don't get to make these decisions without the interference of the government, without the government controlling their bodies in this most fundamental, intimate way. And so when you match 
the lack of a legal rationale for this opinion with the fact that most people feel in their bones that this is just an part of an irreducible minimum of liberty that we must be able to enjoy in order to be truly free, equal members of society, then that is going to vastly undermine the legitimacy of the court. And it's, it's, um, it's an outrage. There's really no other way to say it. Even though it was an outrage that many of us saw coming, that doesn't lessen the impact of this ruling that is deeply contrary to constitutional protections. You know, it's um, our nation thought before very seriously about what it meant to be a free person. After the after we ended slavery through the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment worked to protect what it meant to be a free person. And they looked at fundamental rights and of human dignity that were denied during enslavement and principle were rights of family, including making decisions for yourself about your own reproductive capacity and destiny. And so the idea that now in this moment, we are taking away part of that irreducible minimum of liberty that is protected by the constitution and the 14th amendment um, and has been recognized over and over and over by the Supreme Court um, is truly just horrific. Uh, and it does, I, I, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it does look like the court is more influenced by uh, the politics and the party uh, that got them there than the constitution or the law that they're there to protect. Certainly it's, it's, you know, and I think that the fact that, um, you know, you might have, it appears that Chief Justice Roberts um, himself, very conservative, um, is not going to be part of this five justice majority. At least that's the way it looks from this, um, you know, from what we know at this point. I think that says a lot, too. Um, and it's um, it's extremely concerning that there seems to be just an absolute bulldozing of the Constitution by this Alito opinion in favor of an ideological agenda that is um, has been opposed to abortion. And even the language used by Justice Alito in this opinion, um, talking about, you know, murderesses and um, abortionists as in, ter in the terms of people who provide abortion care. Um, it is very political. And I think only gives more credence to the idea that this is about a political agenda and not about what the Constitution provides. Uh, and finally, I want to come back to something you, you did touch on, but I think it's important to, to, to underscore, which is even though in his draft opinion, Justice Alito says, no, this has nothing, nothing to do with anything beyond abortion. This is only dealing with abortion. That's simply not the case, is it? I mean, th number one, they probably will not stop here. And number two, having taken this step, that puts a lot of other rights of other of Americans at risk. Exactly. That that line is only true in the most technical sense that this is a case about abortion and not a case about um, marriage equality or the right to contraception or et cetera, et cetera. So what else but is at you, risk? So if you look at the reasoning and the opinion, it puts at risk deeply important rights of intimacy. Um, you know, it was unfortunately not that long ago that the court actually recognized a constitutional right to uh, same-sex intimacy. And that was just in 2003. Um, the right to marriage equality that was recognized in Obergefell, um, the reasoning that Alito uses in the abortion opinion would apply to that as well. Even to very, um, I think, taken for granted rights of interracial marriage uh, recognized by the Supreme Court in Loving versus Virginia and other rights relating to hearth and home, you know, the ability to make decisions about your child's education, which, you know, I would put out a lot of conservatives like that. Um, so, you know, there these what are called unenumerated rights. Um, which are protected by the Constitution. They're explicitly protected in the Ninth Amendment, but also protected in the broad language of the 14th Amendment, which talks about liberty 
and due process of law, which talks about equal protection of the law. But basically what Alito is saying in his opinion that any right, including the rights to marriage equality, um, the rights to make decisions about your families, or the right to contraception, um, any right that isn't listed in the Constitution and isn't, as he calls it, deeply rooted in our nation's history, but his test he uses basically hollows out any concept of liberty, so it's hard to really see what fits into his mm -hmm. definition. All of those rights are under threat from this opinion. And so he can say this is only about abortion, but it's only about abortion because that's only what was on the chopping block. But there is no guarantee and, in fact, every reason to fear that these other rights could soon be there as well. Elizabeth Weidra, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for your good work as a watchdog on the court for all of us. Thanks, Elizabeth. My pleasure. And that's it for today's Roundtable. Today's podcast was Roundtable plus interview with Elizabeth Weidra from the Constitutional Accountability Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we go, a quick shout out to one of our regulars and one of our great friends, Sabrina Siddiqui, who gave birth this week, April 30 to a little baby daughter named Sophia. Welcome, Sophia, and congratulations, Sabrina. That's it for today. We'll be back on Tuesday with an interview with Congressman Mark Pocan from the key state of Wisconsin to talk about what's happening in Wisconsin and the politics, of course, on the national level. And again, more of the impact of this Supreme Court appending decision uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade. So meanwhile, folks, have a great weekend. Take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.